The Protestant reformer Martin Luther once said that just as the business of the tailor is to make clothes and the business of the cobbler is to make shoes, the business of the Christian is praying. So in beginning this morning, I just want to ask us the question, how goes business with you? Well, if you're like many Christians, you might be looking at your prayer life and and, and really feeling like it's not all that you want it to be. If you were to evaluate on a scale of 0 to 10, kind of where would your prayer life fall? Um, Just think about that. Like if if you're thinking about that in terms of a 0 being, I don't pray, I don't know how to pray, to 10 being, I'm someone who really consistently seeks the Lord in prayer and and kind of living up to that, that passage that talks about pray without ceasing. So in that kind of zero to ten scale, where do you feel like your prayer life kind of falls? I know for myself, I could not today tell you that I could write down a ten. I'm a lot further down the road than I used to be many years ago, but I still have a long ways to go in terms of my own prayer life and feeling like I'm really close to Christ and doing that really, really consistently. So what I want you to do is that, that first number that came to your mind, go ahead and take your worship guide out right now. Write that number on the cover of your worship guide. Now, I'm not making you do this to make you feel guilty or feel bad. There's actually a reason I'm asking you to kind of do this self-assessment and, and put a number to your prayer life. The real reason is, as we enter into this prayer, uh, this sermon series on prayer, uh, what would Jesus pray? What we want you to consider is kind of where am I at today in my prayer life? And, and our goal would be, over the next few weeks, is not necessarily to get you to a 10. Uh, that would be fantastic, but our goal uh, in the next few weeks would be whatever number you're at is to see you go one step closer to Christ in your prayer life. Trusting and knowing that really prayer is one of the, the few ways that God has really uh, given us significant opportunities to relate to him, to know him, and to experience him in our lives. So our goal would be just to help you move one or two numbers a little higher in your prayer life no matter where you're at. So this passage that was read this morning comes from Luke, and Luke gives us more details about Jesus' prayer life than any of the other biographers in the New Testament. And here in chapter 11, we find that it's as Jesus is praying that his followers see something different about his prayer life. Somehow Jesus' prayer life is characterized by a level of intimacy and richness that, that was so different than what the followers of Jesus had experienced in their, their own lives. Now, certainly they were Jewish. They had been taught how to pray in the synagogue and at home and at the temple. But as they're observing and seeing Jesus' prayer life, they're realizing there's more here than what we've ever experienced in our own life. And so they ask him, as his friends, to teach them how to pray. And that's what we're going to be asking Jesus to do over the next few weeks, is Jesus, teach us to pray the way that you pray so that we might know the Heavenly Father more intimately. So the Lord's Prayer begins uh, by approaching God as Father, or our Father in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus originally gave this prayer in the Aramaic language. That was the spoken language of the day. And the word for Father that Jesus would have used is Abba. Uh, Abba is, was, was a familiar term of endearment uh, that a child would use to address uh, his or her father in the context of a family. It's not quite the equivalent of our word daddy, but it's closer perhaps to dad or our dear father. Now, a first century Jewish person would have never dreamed of approaching God with this kind of familiarity. To call God Abba would have seemed too irreverent and too familiar. Yet this is the way that Jesus invites us to approach our heavenly father. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to approach God with intimate and reverent familiarity. 
And too often we get these two things kind of out of balance. We either approach God reverently but with not enough familiarity or with too, so much familiarity and not enough reverence in that, in that approach. But Jesus invites us to approach God as our Father in heaven with reverent familiarity. Familiarity that dares to approach the majestic and the awesome creator of the galaxies as our Father because of what Jesus has done for us. That brings us to the last part of our second verse in this passage, which is really the first request in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Did you hear the story about the little boy who was praying the Lord's Prayer? He was reciting it one night in his prayers, and he said, Our Father who art in heaven, how did you know my name? He didn't understand hallowed, like he just didn't translate, right? We don't use that word in our culture today, hallowed. And so what does hallowed mean? Well, uh, we, the word hallowed means to make something holy or to treat something as holy. And our, most, our closest word that we use with regularity now is Halloween. So Halloween actually means to make the evening holy, which if you think about Halloween and where we're at today with Halloween versus what the original intent was with Halloween, we're way apart from that, aren't we? Halloween actually is the eve of what's called All Saints Day, and so it was the evening of holy uh, preparation for All Saints Day. And now we have our current uh, structure for Halloween. Now this prayer, when we pray, hallowed be your name, it doesn't mean that God is somehow lacking in holiness so that we have to pray, God, I hope you're going to get holy enough real soon. That's not what we're doing in that prayer. It's rather it's a prayer of God's holiness uh, to be manifested and vindicated for people to treat God uh, with the holiness that already belongs to him. God's name is a reflection of his character, of his very nature. And so in asking God's name to be treated as holy, we're really asking God's reputation to be honored. And in this part of the Lord's Prayer, we move from what I would describe as adoration to affirmation. You see, when we, 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 we can sum up the phrase, hallowed be your name, as adoration, but then we move to your kingdom come, and we're proclaiming affirmation when we pray for God's kingdom to come. Now, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about God's kingdom when he was doing ministry on earth, or, or God's reign. And he believed and he taught that through his life, but then also through his death, that God's reign had descended upon earth. That somehow his death and his resurrection have opened up the door of God's kingdom to all the people. And yet he also taught that, that God's kingdom wouldn't fully come with power and authority until his second coming at the end of the age. And so we live in a time of tension between the establishment of God's kingdom and the consummation of God's kingdom. And some biblical scholars have described this tension as, as living between the already aspects of the kingdom of God and the not yet aspects of the kingdom of God. And through Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and the power of sin in our lives has been taken away because we live in this realm of knowing that we're forgiven because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And yet, we also live in the not yet because we still struggle with sin in our lives. We're still failing, and we're still falling. So we live in that tension. And through Jesus, we also know that our salvation is already guaranteed because we promise complete healing and restoration when, when Christ comes again. But we're also in the not yet because our bodies still get sick and we still struggle with doubts and fears in our lives. We already experienced the powers of evil and darkness have been defeated by Christ through his death and his resurrection. And yet the not yet is present because there's still evil 
And there's still darkness in our world. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not asking for the already part in that prayer, but we're looking forward to the not yet part happening. And so we get to this teaching and it leads to a second invitation in the Lord's Prayer that when we pray for God's kingdom reign to come, we're affirming our trust in God to answer requests, our requests, appropriately. So when we ask God for something, there are three possible answers that God responds with. One is yes, and he affirms our requests, he grants our requests, and he, he gives us what we're praying for. He also can say, no, uh, I'm not going to grant that request. Uh, but the third response is also not yet, not now. And he holds back granting the request until later. So every request we make of God is one of those three responses from God, either yes, no, or not yet. So it's answered in one of those three ways, whether it's a request to be healed from cancer or a request for a job promotion or a request for escrow when we're trying to close on our house or a request for a friend to come to Christ. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, God, I'm, I'm going to choose to trust you to answer all my requests. We're saying, God, this is what I want. This is what I think is what's best in my situation or my circumstance. But I trust you ultimately, and I believe that you can see this situation clearer than I can see this situation. And I know that you have good things in your mind for me. And so we pray with the perspective of Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayers. Do you remember that song? It was really popular a number of years ago. And, and the song talks about how this guy goes back to his high school reunion and he sees the woman that during high school he desperately wanted to be in a relationship with. In fact, he, he wanted this woman to marry him. And he had spent many of his high school years praying that God would answer his request and give this woman to him and cause her to become attracted to him. And he comes to the high school reunion, but in the high school reunion he walks away thanking God that God did not answer with an affirm, affirmative response his request for this woman to be his wife. Because he has a woman in, in his life, his wife is his wife is someone that he knows that God brought to him and is so much better than the woman that he thought in high school should be his wife. And so in that instance, God's re, uh, response to this guy's prayer was no. He, he answered him no. And there are so many unanswered prayers for God's children, but, but sometimes the answer is no or not yet. And life can seem like a maze at, time, at times. I mean, it, it's just full of twists and turns that are unexpected or not asked for, and it seems at times it doesn't make sense. And we ask the question at times, why is life leading us in the opposite direction of where we think we need to go? Why does the door close that most seems like the door that would be the thing that would glorify God, and yet it's closed? Why, why is that? And in those times of doubt and uncertainty, we pray to, to God, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we're affirming that we're confident that God's plan will be completed. And, and when we live in this tension between the already and the not yet, we affirm our confidence that the culmination of God's plan will answer our not yet questions. And then we come to the next phrase in this prayer that Jesus is teaching us. And the prayer is, give us each day our daily bread. And in that prayer, we're asking for our daily allotment of food, but in, and by implication, our daily allotment of all the resources that we need in life. And when we pray for our daily bread, we're asking God to meet all of our basic needs. We're not just asking for food and for water, but we're, we're seeking God to meet whatever needs we have in this moment, in this time. And all of our needs, 
All of our needs, whether they're trivial or they're momentous, are brought before our Father in heaven. And we're reminded that our Father knows uh, what we need. He's not ignorant of our needs. He's never on vacation. Uh, He's not distracted by what's happening in Iraq or Syria or even in Washington, D.C. He's not too distracted to know what our needs are here today. He knows what we need, even before we ask him for what we need. He knows what we need. And we're invited to bring our needs to God because when we do that, when we bring our needs to God in prayer, we admit that we are not self-sufficient. There are times we'd like to convince ourselves that we're self-sufficient, that we're autonomous, that we're self-reliant people who have life by the throat. We, we in fact, meticulously build around us an illusion of security. Uh, oftentimes we lure ourselves into the delusion that our lives are untouchable, that we can plan for many months and many years in order to create a secure place and, and a place that we, we believe that we're going to not be hurt by. We believe that we're the captains of our faith. We can believe that we're the masters of our own destiny. And we can enjoy a life of illusion because it makes us feel safe and secure. And yet one action, one action, can bring our house of cards come crashing to the ground. It only takes a national tragedy like 9-11 or a personal tragedy like a car accident or, or a, a, a diagnosis of terminal cancer for us to realize we're not in control. We're not in control. How vulnerable and how needy we really are. And prayer continually reminds us of that. Jesus is teaching us here. You need to be reminded on a daily basis that you're dependent on God's provision in every aspect of your life. And so we bring our needs to God in prayer. We're admitting we can't handle all these things by ourselves. Prayer becomes a way of breaking through our denial and giving us a reality check as we admit before an infinite God that we can't take care of ourselves. We bring our needs to our Father because he, he, we can't meet them in our own strength. That's why we pray, give us each day our daily bread. And next, Jesus in the prayer invites us to forgiveness in prayer. And this is the part of the Lord's Prayer that's really radical. And I want you to notice what this prayer is saying and what it's not saying, what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, forgive us our sins as we promise to forgive those who sin against us. It also doesn't say, forgive us our sins as someday we will forgive those who sin against us. The whole phrasing is present tense, right? We say to forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. That's an amazing statement if you think about it. We're asking that God would treat our sins the same way that we've treated those who sinned against us. So when we pray this prayer with an unforgiving heart, in essence we're telling God, do not forgive my sins because I am not willing to forgive those who sin against me. We're asking God to treat us the exact same way We're treating those who have sinned against us. Now, this part of the prayer, it deals both with receiving God's forgiveness, but also extending forgiveness to others. And and I want to just kind of briefly examine both aspects of this, this forgiveness exchange. So first of all, receiving God's forgiveness. Now, the Bible, I think, talks about two uh, big areas of the kinds of forgiveness that we receive from God. The first kind of forgiveness that the Bible talks about is justification. It's a forgiven status. It's what the Bible calls justification. Romans 5.1 uh, is an example of this kind of forgiveness. The passage says, Therefore, 
Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ that leads to eternal life. This means that once we're justified through our faith in Jesus Christ, we never need to be justified before God again. We'll never again stand guilty in God's courtroom. Our status before God has been permanently altered. So if you've trusted in Christ, you'll never be more justified before God than you are right now. So there's a forgiven status that's described in the Bible, but there's also a forgiven experience that's talked about. We call this kind of forgiven experience cleansing. So this is the kind of forgiveness that's described in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Why would John encourage John, the disciple, one of the very closest friends of Jesus, why would he encourage people who are, are already justified to still confess their sins? After all, haven't they all been delivered from the penalty of sin uh, uh, through Christ's death on the cross? So why would we need forgiveness if we still have peace with God through our faith in Christ? Well, the answer is because this is talking about a different kind of forgiveness. So when we sin as Christians, our status before God is unchanged. We're still justified if we have faith in Christ. But suddenly, in our experience, we feel distant from God. Sin has breached our closeness with a holy and a just God. It's placed a barrier between us and God. And so when we confess our sins as justified Christians, we're not asking to be justified again, but we need to experience once again the cleansing power of God's forgiveness in our lives. We, we need to be, uh, experience the forgiveness that is already ours through justification. So even if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we need to regularly, daily, I would say, ask Christ to forgive us in the areas that we fail Him as His disciples. We do this so that there's no barriers in our relationship with a holy and a just God, and we can enter into His presence free from any stain of conscience or burden of any sin that we've committed. But we move from talking about receiving God's forgiveness to extending forgiveness to others. This, this prayer that Jesus taught teaches us there's an important connection between receiving forgiveness and extending forgiveness. Uh, we can't ignore the connection because it's so strong in God's Word. And when, whenever we pray for forgiveness as Christians, we're also praying as we forgive everyone who has sinned against us. So here's what we learn. Through prayer, we express the forgiveness of, of those who hurt us who've wounded us. Again, offering forgiveness is really hard. It's radical. Yet ultimately, forgiveness is a response to God's grace in our lives. Jesus tells a story in the Gospels about a parable, basically. He talks about a king who a certain servant owes millions and millions and millions of dollars to. The debt is so large that the servant would would never be able to pay it off for the rest of his lifetime. And the king calls to account all of his debts, including this servant who has this massive debt. And the servant goes before the king, and he cannot pay the debt. There's no way. And he begs for mercy. And in a surprising move, the king forgives the whole debt, the whole thing. And the guy walks away completely free of the burden of the debt that he had before the king. And the same man, just a few days later, goes to one of the fellow servants, and and he tries to collect on a small debt that that guy owes him. It's just, we're told it's just a few dollars. And so 
He goes to the guy and he asks for these few dollars. The guy doesn't have the few dollars and the servant gets mad and he, and he has the man thrown in jail because he can't pay his debt. And when the master learns about what the servant did, he's so angry because the master knows that how much this, this servant has been forgiven and that now he hasn't, hasn't gone and he hasn't shown just a small amount of grace to the one who has a very small debt to pay. And what the essence of that story is, is that God's forgiveness to us is like the king's. And we, if we refuse to forgive other sins, we're like the servant who fails to offer a small amount of grace in light of our huge debt that God has forgiven in our lives. So forgiveness, again, is really radical work. If you look for the resources to forgive in your own heart, you're going to be looking for a really long, long time. There's no forgiveness in my heart unless it's been placed there by the grace of God. Until you truly realize the extent of your sin against God and the incredible grace that he's shown you through Jesus Christ, you'll find it very difficult to forgive other people. And that's why I think non-Christians find it so difficult to forgive because they haven't yet experienced God's forgiveness in their own lives and for their sin in their own lives. And we need to think about forgiveness as both, when we extend it to others as both a choice But it's also a process. It begins as a choice to not hold that person's sin against them any longer. But then it's also a process of reminding myself of that decision again and again and again. It means that if I make the choice to forgive, then my emotions will eventually follow the choice that I make to offer forgiveness. And so we say, I choose to forgive. And when negative emotions may come back to us about that person, we then can take those negative emotions and submit them, those feelings, to God and to my decision to forgive that person. It's both a choice and it's a process. And if you want to see a powerful story about forgiveness, I would encourage you to go see the movie uh, uh, The Shack. Thank you. Go see The Shack. It's out right now. It's an incredible story of the power of forgiveness in somebody's life. Um, it's really a story about a father who loses his child. Uh, the child is kidnapped. Ultimately, the child is murdered. Devastating. And, and it's about the process that God leads this dad through that, that ultimately leads to radical forgiveness, where the dad forgives the one who kidnapped his child and murdered his child. And, and it's really an amazing, amazing, powerful story. Now, uh, the shack, it, it portrays a really interesting uh, view of God. And I don't know that I would agree with every way they p- portray God in the movie. It's compelling. Uh, but the story of forgiveness is so worth going to the movie. I think you'll really appreciate it if you go to it. Again, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is not pretending that something that is evil is actually good. That is not what forgiveness is. However, when we forgive, we release people into the hands of God for him to deal with them. And as wounded people, it's probably good that we don't operate as judge and jury over that person, but we we give them over to the hands of the perfect judge, the creator of the heaven and earth, whose perfect love and amazing grace rule perfectly. The last invitation in this prayer that Jesus teaches is an invitation to security against our enemy. The first enemy, I believe, is the enemy that exists within each of our own hearts. It's like the old saying, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. We find that enemy implied in the phrase, lead us not into temptation. 
Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, lead me not into temptation, I can find it myself. Isn't that so true? I mean, temptation is just waiting right at the doorstep, wherever we turn. Because all of us have an inner propensity to seek out temptation in our lives. Whenever we pray this prayer, we're admitting that there's something inside of our hearts that doesn't want to please God. We're admitting there's a part of each of us deep down in our hearts that doesn't want to be faithful to our spouse. That wants to take things that don't belong to us. That wants to hurt people that have hurt us. And when we pray this prayer, we're admitting that we can't handle this part of ourselves all on our own. The first enemy we encounter is ourselves. And here's what we find out about how this prayer helps us in this area. In prayer, we find the strength to resist the urge to disobey God. You see, we lack the strength to face temptation alone. We're like an electrical appliance without the power cord. Think about if you had a circular saw and you were trying to cut a two-by-four and that circular saw is not plugged in to the electrical outlet, you're not cutting the two-by-four, right? It's manually, it is impossible to do that by ourselves. It's the same way. It's like if we um, are desiring to resist temptation, but we're not plugged into the power source of God to resist temptation and evil in our lives, it ain't going to happen, folks. It ain't going to happen. Jesus gave us the image of this full, power, this full prayer, the template of this whole prayer that, that he didn't merely expect us to recite this prayer like we recite our ABCs, and that somehow there's magic in these words of the Lord's Prayer. No, the goal is he's teaching us a pattern of prayer that invites us into a relationship and teaches us how to have that relationship with the living God. And so we begin to learn about the life of prayer from our Master, from our Savior, from our King. So each of the weeks as we look at these prayers of Jesus, we're going to invite you to do these prayer experiences uh, the rest of the week. And so as you leave this morning, I would encourage you, there's actually a flyer in the trays in the back of the, of the worship center that can lead you through an experience of the Lord Prayer. And I would encourage you, why don't you take five minutes a day, especially if you're somebody who doesn't pray regularly, just take five minutes, do each of those. There's a little phrase in each part of the Lord's Prayer and pray each one of those little parts of the Lord's Prayer for one minute. And I believe that God's really going to increase uh, your relationship with him through your, your life in prayer with him. And I want us all also, as we close this morning, normally I'll give the closing prayer, but this morning, and we close, this, close the message, I'm going to invite all of us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And it's going to be on the screen behind me. And we're actually going to take time and pray each one of these phrases and, and take a break between each of the phrases. And I'm going to give you a little bit of instructions and some things that I want you to pray to the Lord directly and silently, uh, kind of as we take that, that time in between the phrases. And so the prayer's on the screen behind me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So what I want you to do in just silence is to thank God for making you his child and honor his holy name and his holy character. Let's go to the next response and phrase. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in the quietness of your heart, pray for God's kingdom to come in greater ways, affirming that you trust a good and faithful God.
Let's do the next response. Give us today our daily bread. So in quietness, bring your needs today to God, trusting in God's provision. Let's do the next next response. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. So quietly confess your own sins to God, seeking His cleansing. But additionally, if there's someone you have not forgiven, release that person to God and trust in His response to that person. Let's do the next response. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So in the quietness of your heart, ask God for the power to resist the temptations and the evil schemes of the enemy. I invite you to close the the end of the Lord's Prayer with the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Let's say this together. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.